You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Arnold. Hey, Bob. Honored to be here. Well, honored to have you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. Uh, available both on streaming video and as an audio podcast. You are Arnold Kling, uh, an economist by training. Um, that's not the main reason you're, uh, you're, we're having this conversation, as I'll explain, but it's worth noting. Um, and uh, you have, I think, worked at the Federal Reserve, have you not, in your, uh, among other mm-hmm. things? Deep, dark past. Yes. Deep, dark past. You are, I think it's fair to say, of a free market orientation. That uh, You were at the Cato Institute for a while. That's not particularly relevant to the conversation we're going to have, but uh, uh, that's my the inference I'm drawing. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I'm a neoliberal. Neoliberal. Well, well, I would, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that like the worst thing you can possibly be these days? Well, it's funny. When you were at Cato, the worst thing you could be was a libertarian, which is what Cato was thought of at that time. So. Uh, uh, Actually, just to some point, I was never—I never had an office or a salary at Cato. Okay, you were—you were a the an adjunct, which gives you nothing. But that's fine. Okay, it just gives you a bad reputation, which is there you uh, go in in some circles. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, so uh, yeah, I mean, Cato was thought of as liber, flat out libertarian, liber. But but yeah. those libertarians have become more mainstream, I, and I don't know if that means they've become less libertarian or the stream has moved or what. I don't I don't know. But I think you've become more libertarian. Are you? Yeah, I've I mean, become you, more libertarian. No, oh, I don't. You're, think so. you, oh, you're hanging out with with Hanania. Oh, I have a diversity of people on my show. I also just had a. I got a lot of blowback from having a woke anthropologist on. I I uh, I'm um uh, I try to. Uh, you know, I try to be open to a to a variety of voices. Um, I've had the the editors of uh, of Jacobin and and uh, Current Affairs, the two big socialist magazines. I'm so I'll, I'll stop now. I'll stop bragging about the diversity <laughs> of my guests. But um, uh, it's true. I I I I hang out in, in bad circles on both sides. Um, so uh, we are going to talk about what is sometimes called the problem of tribalism, the psychology of, of tribalism. Um, and, and you are relevant to that in a couple of ways. Uh, I have a newsletter, non-zero newsletter, where I'm trying to start something of an anti-tribalism initiative, help people become less tribal. You have been involved in that in your own way, uh, both on your, uh, blog, uh, which is no longer the center of your activity, I know, but but uh, your blog had the uh, the, the, the motto, it, it said it was called uh, Ask Blog, I guess, and it said, taking the most charitable view of those who disagree. Um, well, that would be uh, an anti-tribal initiative. Now, you, you have now the center of your activity is a Substack newsletter called In My Tribe, which in a way doesn't sound so anti-tribal, but what is what do you mean by that uh, by that title in my tribe? It's a little bit ironic and a little bit of a play on one of my favorite musical bands, uh, Ten Thousand Maniacs. Ah, 
You're going to have to elaborate on that because I don't see the obvious correspondence between the phrase 10,000 maniacs and in my tribe. Did they have a song called uh, In My Tribe or something? They, they, that was their first big hit album. It was called In My Tribe. Interesting. Interesting. Um, okay. So there's two, kind of two reasons that two, uh, that I'm you know, having you on the show, or at least two things to put the idea in my head. One is that you... Uh, started this thing called fantasy intellectual teams modeled after these fantasy sports teams where you draft these real life athletes. And then uh, through some algorithm, you figure out how your team would have done in a given week. Would you have won? Would you have uh, whatever? And you did this with um, intellectuals and among the grading criteria were a number of criteria that basically gave points for being not so tribal, or at least for exhibiting tendencies that tend to be anti-tribal, right? Things like playing devil's advocate, so-called steel manning, which is to say uh, giving the strongest version of your your intellectual adversary's argument rather than uh, a misleadingly weak characterization of it and and things like that, right? So so the, the idea that was anti-tribalism was part of the spirit of that, I take it? Oh, it, it's kind of the essence of it. So let, um, so you mentioned that my training is as, as an economist. And ever since Adam Smith, economists have noticed that the division of labor is important in the economy, right? So, um, you know, we, we couldn't possibly make the things that we consume anymore. I mean, I, I couldn't, uh, grow the food that I eat. I couldn't make the clothes that I wear. I couldn't build the shelter I'm in. Uh, much less, you know, manufacture a car or, you know, any of these, you know, telecommunications devices, what have you. So we're not self-sufficient. We're we're very specialized. We have division of labor, uh, and I think analogously, we have cognitive division of labor. We are not self-sufficient in terms of what we believe and what we know. So I have an aphorism that goes, uh, we decide what to believe by deciding who to believe. And I think that the uh, that that process of who deciding who to believe has gotten worse. It's gotten more tribal. Uh, and and so what I was looking for is a what is sort of other criteria that would elevate other criteria rather than tribal criteria for deciding who to believe. Um, if I can, you know, just throw out an example. Um, you know, who should we believe about COVID? Should we believe Anthony Fauci or should we believe uh, Joe Rogan? And that, that seems to be the choices that, that most people make. And clearly that's based a lot on tribalism. You know, so the one tribe likes Rogan, another tribe likes Fauci. Um, I actually don't much like either of them. Uh, I, think, uh, I think the 20th century heuristic for deciding who to believe would have had you pick Fauci because he has the official credential and he has the institutional um, attachment. Uh, The 21st century heuristic for some people would be to go with Rogan because he has a lot of followers. 
and kind of this kind of anti-establishment style, which appeals to a lot of people, uh, it's probably always appealed to a lot of people, but seem to especially to appeal, appeal to people now. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of Rogan. I, you know, I sort of pick up a little bit from osmosis, but I'd say based on that, I don't, you know, I, I think if, if nothing else, he's too variable. Um, you know, he probably wouldn't be someone I would, you know, he wouldn't be my go-to person. Um, and my problem with uh, Anthony Fauci is he doesn't show his work. So you do when he says something, he just says it. He doesn't say, "Well, you know, here here are the papers that I've read and evaluated, and this is and that's my basis for what I'm saying." So, and when he changes his mind, which is a perfectly fine thing to do, you know, say, "All right, one day he's saying uh, you can go on a cruise." That's what he was said, you know, when when the pandemic first broke, and then later he's you know much more about you know social distancing. One day he's against masks, one day he's for it. I don't mind changing your mind. That's that's a good thing. But say why. Show your work. Say, mm-hmm. I changed my mind because. So two example, the people I believe most on COVID are two um, people that you can find on Substacks, V. Mauschewitz and Emily Oster. They were both kind of picked by people in this fantasy intellectual teams league, and they show their work. If you read, they go to great pains to explain how they got to the positions they did. And, and they're very good at evaluating research. They're not together at all. As far as I know, they don't even know each other exists. But uh, Emily Oster and Zvi Mauschewitz kind of are the fan, fantasy intellectual stars that I would turn to in the, uh, in the COVID realm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say the point your your the first point you made is worth dwelling on. That that the key question is who do people decide to trust as authorities? You know, you hear, especially on the left, trust the science. Well, you know, there is no, I mean, you know, you have to pick a scientist to trust, and they and they can disagree. And and I think um you know, the fact is very few of us know enough about most of the relevant scientific issues, the, the scientific issues we feel we have to have an opinion on to really decide based on the, the science per se. We have to figure out who to trust. Yeah. Those of us who take climate change seriously don't really know enough to do that, right? I, I mean, right. Uh, unless we've spent a lot of time on it. And I'm convinced it's a serious problem, but it, but it involved kind of assessing the credibility of various people and trying to discount for the fact that Honestly, I would expect that the cl- climate scientists as a group do have a, a bias uh, on balance. I would I would guess that that field tends to draw people who are concerned about the problem. But I've tried to discount for all that. But but my point is, you're right. It, it, it's uh, trust the science makes no sense. And you shouldn't just trust the scientists. You can't because they disagree. So it's a genuine problem. And, and you know, um, uh, it, it, you know, there's this movie, Don't Look Up, which has been taken as an allegory uh, both for climate change and for COVID. And a point I made in my review of it in my newsletter was, you know, one thing that the movie got really wrong was there's this New York Times stand-in in the movie. And their big crime in the movie is to 
ignore the problem, which according to the directors is supposed to represent uh, climate change. And and I said, no, that that's that's not the actual problem in real life. They, they, the problem isn't the New York Times ignoring climate change. It's that nobody who doesn't already take climate change seriously trusts the New York Times. Right. So it yeah. doesn't it just doesn't matter anymore. Almost what, what if your goal is to convert skeptics, it almost doesn't matter anymore. So I think that is a big part of the problem. It is one um, one one symptom uh, that that things are more tribal than they used to be. I'm curious, do you, do you well, you were about to say something in response to that. Uh, well, I think that increasingly people are using as the heuristic uh the whether someone belongs to their political tribe or not. So you know, climate change ought to be, uh, as we say, orthogonal to your politics, right? You should. There's no reason why being a Democrat should make you, you know, be worried about climate change, and being a Republican should make, mean that you you don't think it's happening. Um, so, but so many for so many people, the heuristic is tribal, right? Um, and um, and then sort of, the, again, that gets back to the goal, you know, my goal, and I, you know, I, I, it's a tough goal to achieve, but try to change people's heuristic to something where they look at how people reason and how people engage in discourse, rather than looking at what tribe they belong to. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering uh, how much better you think things were, say, you know, pre, pre-internet. I mean, you and I both remember a time when there were basically three TV networks. There were these two very powerful news magazines, Time and Newsweek. Uh, now, municipalities had more plurality in a way in the ecosystem than, than they do now, at least along some dimensions. You, you often had competing newspapers in a way that you rarely do now. But on balance, it was a pretty centralized system. The, the people at the networks all went to the same parties, right? And 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 and, and so, it, you know, they kind of told you who the experts were, and yeah. and we and we listened to them, and 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 when the internet showed up, I think there was hope, and this maybe started with cable TV, but there was hope that there would be so much more pluralism uh, that you know there would be kind of a reality check on these centralized sources of authority, right? You you know, people yeah. could challenge them and say. Uh, you know, are these isn't you know? Are you really telling us uh, the truth about some problem or other? Um, and uh, you know, it hasn't entirely worked out that way. I mean, there have been those challenges, and and some of them are good. But on the other hand, there has been this larger tribalizing effect that I think is at least to some extent due to these very changes in in the media. I, I don't know what your view is on that, but my larger question is: Were things ever as great as we think, or were there in fact do you think that there were cases where we really kind of weren't being told the truth, so to speak, about significant problems? Well, the um, the example that comes to mind when you ask your last question is the Vietnam War, right? Where you know for a long time, um, you know, the establishment was wrong, and uh, and it was very hard for the media to get around that, and they you know for a long time the media. Told the story the way, you know, the Johnson, Kennedy and Johnson administration wanted them to tell it. Um, you know, w- w- you know, the, the exceptions gradually grew, but um, you know, so that that that's a kind of a that's a problem with the sort of 
what I call what I call the 20th century heuristic of trust the people with the credentials and the uh, official viewpoint. I think one of the problems that it's emerged in the new media environment is the um, the incentive to have a, to uh, to have an unbiased point of view has gone away. This is the point that Andre Mir makes in his book Post Journalism that um, you know when when you just had the, the 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 few TV stations, the newspapers, and they were um, their incentive was to try to appeal to the most people possible, um, and so they wanted they didn't want to. Uh, get anyone angry or, or feed on anyone's anger. They wanted mm-hmm. to actually kind of smooth things out, maybe make things seem more calm than they, than they should be. Now, the the because there are so many outlets competing for attention, and the only way to get attention in that world is to fire up people's anger. You get the media environment we have. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny on Vietnam just as testament to how centralized the system was, a pivotal moment was when Walter Cronkite, an anchorman on CBS, decided he was against the Vietnam War. And yeah. Johnson was like, oh, well, that's it. I'm toast. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like one, one guy, uh, the most trusted man in America, uh, yeah. changed his mind. I'm trying to think on kind of health issues, you know, uh, in retrospect, you know, apparently there was a time when uh, in the movie Tree of Life, you see a scene that I'm told actually happened, which is uh, DDT had a very sweet smell. And they and and and, and they would uh, when they first when they didn't realize that it was in some context toxic, they were pretty uh, profuse in distributing it. And there's a scene where little ki- kids on bikes are following a truck that's spraying DDT because oh, it God. smells sweet. And I'm told that actually happened. Another yeah. thing that happened is uh, before they they knew about uh, X-ray excessive X-ray uh, being carcinogenic, uh, shoe stores as a like a novelty uh, as a kind of a come on would would have an X-ray machine. They'd say, "Come in and and uh, look at the bone structure of your foot," and people would just you know, just sit there and, and gawk while, you know, yeah. uh, get, get, getting, pro- and I'll bet there were people somewhere in America in both cases going, wait a second. Now today they would be able to, they would have a chance to get people's attention. The people saying, wait a second, there are people saying, wait a second about vaccines. Uh, and, and I'm sure there, there are some downsides we should, we should pay attention to. You know, the problem is that for whatever reason, often th- those skeptics um, foment a uh, kind of conspiratorial uh, mindset that it's, you know, and in fact, you mentioned Rogan. I just did a piece on uh, Robert Malone in my in my newsletter, I think documenting that he has some of these tendencies. You know, Robert Malone mm. is in a way the actual analog of Fauci in the Rogan universe. You know, he's he, he has some credentials, uh, unlike yeah. Rogan. Uh, but 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 anyway, what? Yeah, I I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that set of reflections? Um, no, there's a lot to get into in terms of the. But the, you know, the the main thing is that the the advantage of having a the 20th century heuristic of trust, you know, trust the establishment is that you have a society that's um, that is not fragmented, is not as divisive. As the society we have now, 
the disadvantage is that when they make them, when the establishment is wrong, as in Vietnam, uh, first of all, it causes you know terrible tragedy, the war, and secondly, uh, um, it ultimately uh, you know makes that uh, trust system break down, and and you know the the country, if if it's divided now, it was certainly especially divided during the Vietnam era yeah. because uh, because of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get into foreign policy, but I, 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 I'm surprised by the extent to which the foreign policy establishment manages to maintain a pretty effective consensus, even in the modern media environment on certain things. But I won't. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the foreign policy establishment. Yes, and I, I, I know on, on, about your views on the blob, <laughs> and that's a um, no. That I mean, it's a an interesting issue where again the, the 20th century heuristic is was not perfect i mean it yeah. it made for a, you know some degree of social cohesion that maybe we miss but uh it certainly wasn't perfect and so yeah. uh that gets back to sort of my attempt to create new heuristics um right and i think that there are uh a lot of indicators that people have let's say an open mind and can, can and are evaluating two sides of an issue and not being tribal um right so you know you mentioned a, a couple of them um the you know being able to play devil's advocate and uh in the in the the one month that I did this fantasy intellectual teams, I think you, you scored just about the most points. And uh, well, that's how your experiment uh, came to my attention. I was somebody said, you know, you're you you've been drafted on this. You know, <laughs> at first I wondered whether when I saw the, the 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 title, whether it meant that it was a fantasy that I was an intellectual. I was happy to see it didn't mean that I was actually I, I was very surprised to hear that I've been drafted along with mainly, I would say, better known people. Uh, although I th- I think your your goal was to have it a fair number of people who weren't super well known right that that was part of the idea. Well, well, I mean, if the super well known people are the happen to be the best, that's then in fact you don't need the project. I mean, you don't have a problem, right? But, uh, so the, the the problem is is to really get the the people who are uh, you know who have the right characteristics to be better known. Yeah. So this. So now we're we're in the kind of. So what do we do about the problem? Uh, part of our discussion. And before we get back to your fantasy teams, I want to mention the other the other thing that put in my mind the thought of uh, having you on the show, which was an exchange you and I had on my newsletter, where uh, you seemed uh, surprisingly pessimistic about the prospect, as I understood what you said about the prospect of changing this unless you happen to find yourself running like a major institution or something with a lot of power, which I think uh, it's fair to say neither neither of us does. So here was your your comment was on these little uh, animated mini lectures I had uh, I had put together on specific cognitive biases that I think uh, are part of the psychology of, of tribalism, like confirmation bias, attribution error, and so on. You said nice things about them. And then you said, I wonder, though, how much can be gained by trying to change people's heads one at a time? Institutions and social norms have the highest leverage in affecting behavior. And my first thought was, well, yeah, institutions do. Unfortunately, I'm not running a big one. Uh, social norms, I, I think of as like almost not leverageable. I almost think of them as, as the output, the thing you would hope would change as a result of whatever lever you use, right? That's what we're trying to do. 
That's a, that's a fair point. The, um, um, but again, this goes to sort of, you know, what, what is the heuristic that people use to decide who to trust? And mm-hmm. what, we, what we need to do is move people off of the heuristic that says, you know, th- this person sounds like they belong to my political tribe and on to something else. Right. Uh, the, and um, um, so that, you know, sort of the, the idea, and, you know, I can easily explain, you know, sort of what, what goes wrong with it, but the idea of the fantasy intellectual teams is like uh, it, it creates, creates a focal point for people to look at, oh, these are the characteristics mm-hmm. That and these are the people who have these characteristics mm-hmm. that are non-tribal. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, and you know, and I had flirted with doing something in the non-zero newsletter like that. You know, kind of dishing out positive reinforcement, trying to mobilize readers or something in in helping to give positive reinforcement on social media for good behavior, and maybe negative reinforcement for bad behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, one could argue about the the relative merits of those two things, but in a sense, that's what you were uh, you were trying to give positive reinforcement. So, exactly. talk a little about how it went. And I don't know. Do you want to talk about more of the? There were other criteria. We, yeah, we got, let, 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 let me yeah. just go through them. So yeah. you, um, um, so the, the two toughest criteria were steel manning and debate. So let's start with debate. So. Um, Wait, can I interrupt uh, you? And just one other thing, like who did the grading? So you had these okay. people actually drafted their team. You had owners of teams who who chose their intellectuals. And yeah. then how was the, you know, uh, the equivalent of, uh, you know, how was the grading done each week? Okay, or well, that that's the challenge. Okay, so first of all, people would, the owners would say, well, you know, like the person who who drafted you would say, you know, Listen to this segment of the podcast. Here he's uh, showing an open mind, or here he's, you know, and I have a def- had a definition of open mind, which I'll get to. Or here he asked a devil's advocate question, and then and then I would look at that and say, yes, I approve, or no, I disapprove. So you were the so, referee. Yeah, yeah, okay. I was. I was, and uh, so, while we're on that, that that is exactly the challenge and the problem with this. So, so, if, so t- let's let's go with baseball. So, when you and I were growing up, you know, we knew what the, what statistics were: batting average, earned run average. They'd been around for many, many years, and they hadn't changed for many years. You know, they only changed the, the statistics in baseball only changed, and you know, after the Nobel Prize winning work of Bill James in the 1980s or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also in the 1980s. It happens to be that uh, that the fantasy baseball kind of kind of gets invented. Uh, but you you have this layer of existing statistics that have already been defined. So you know if if I get on base, if I get a hit, and then you uh, you pinch run for me, and the next person hits a home run. You could argue that I should get credit for the run scored, but the tradition baseball is you get credit. You were the you were the, the pinch runner. Fine. So all that stuff has been settled for a long time. There are all these official avenues and people whose job it is to keep track of things and, and gather these statistics. And so then on top of this existing layer comes this fantasy draft. And so the 
there's not that much more work to be done to execute the fantasy, you know, to, to do the fantasy thing. When I tried to do it with the, this intellectual scoring system, I started with no, nobody was collecting statistics on the original thing. And I'm trying to jump ahead all the way to being able to, right. to draft on it. And so, yeah, it was way too much work for the owners and way too much work for me to try to do that. Although, although it might be a worthwhile thing to do. I mean, Bill James, you had this, you know, thing that he called project score sheet where he actually had, you know, people who were dedicated to his way of doing things, go to baseball games and track the statistics that he thought would be really helpful. And that's, that's evolved into the whole. So, so what he did, I gather is, is develop a much more rigorous system for estimating the actual value of individual players. I mean, his output was a value to the professionals who actually drafted the players or made them contract offers. Right. It it turned out to be valuable to them, but he, he was just doing it out of just kind of, you know, his intellectual interest when he first started. Okay. so, you know, your thing, I mean, if you could get funding right, uh, I, I, there would still be big challenges in the kind of who's the referee question. But it, it would be interesting if you could get like a, a foundation, you know, to. to sure. To, 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 uh, yeah, we encourage that. <laughs> yeah, um, there's. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know this book that came out this year called Noise by I think. Cass Sunstein and some other favorite famous people. I was just saying that, um, you know, like uh, the same case will be judged differently by two different judges or even the same judge at different times of day. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be noise in in this kind of, you know, judging, you know, was this a steel man or was it not? And there are a lot of challenges with it, but you're right. If you had enough people hired to do it and committed to do it and you could mm. you know train them you, you, yeah you could you could have this done all right so let me can i switch sure. to sort of what these categories are so so debate think of a high school debate think of something where you don't get points the way you do now for making uh, personal attacks or snappy put downs you get points for showing that you can bring evidence and logic to bear on your side, and you can respond to the other side's evidence and logic. Uh, so you see that occasionally online. You'll see a, a, a good debate, but not, not too often, but not many points on that. Um, steel manning is, in some sense, like doing a debate, except the other side doesn't appear. So you actually have to make the best possible case for the other side and then try to respond. So those were two difficult ones. Uh, a, a simpler one was what I called an open mind, which is saying, either you're saying, I changed my mind because, or I would change my mind if. Hmm. So, uh, you know, if, you know, if, if someone challenged you on your, you know, let's say non-intervention view in Ukraine, uh, you know, and someone asked a devil's advocate question like, well, you know, what, what, a, what about the people who say that if we let uh, Putin get away with things in Ukraine, it'll increase his influence in Europe and that'll be uh, a bad thing. And then, you know, this, that would be a devil's advocate question. 
Uh, and an open mind way to answer that would be, well, I would change my mind if Putin did this or if the uh, outcome were that. Um, and that, that would be demonstrated. But you can't just sort of, well, I changed my mind, a la Fauci. You have to uh, show your work and say either hypothetically why you would change your mind or not. Um, a couple of interesting categories. One is a uh, what I call a kickoff, which is just somebody you know, writes an essay or blog post or you know, God help us, a Twitter thread, and people on both sides, uh, you know, respond to it, react to it, make a big deal of it. Um, it becomes you know, so you've sort of kicked off a, a discussion. It's a, it's a discussion starter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another one is research. I mean, as you know, you know, most of the time people cite research, it's absolutely just confirmation bias, right? Yes. It's something that they... I've done it myself. Right. They present because, you know, they don't question it because it supports their point of view. And if something comes along that didn't, they would question it. But there are people who actually look at research uh, from the standpoint of, well, What's credible? What's not? I mean, a classic mm -hmm. thing would be. I don't know. Do you you familiar with Scott, the way Scott Alexander looked at ivermectin? Uh, I am. I was just thinking about that. I mean, I just uh, looked at that piece of his. Uh, I mean, he's uh, recently the the uh, yeah. You mean the piece where he basically confirmed or sided with some uh, a couple of experts who had who had pointed out that. Ivermectin, you know, there's been a bewildering diversity of findings about ivermectin. There were a number of small studies that found it effective in fighting COVID. And, and the finding is now that those tend to be in places that have a lot of parasitic worms. And so apparently exactly. it's, it's the anti-parasitic properties of ivermectin, which is the whole reason it was developed in the first place, that are keeping people healthy enough to fight off COVID. And that's why it's probably not going to be of much use in the United States, but it is of use uh, in some places, yeah, that was a, uh, I mean, actually, I was most struck by his mode of exposition, which is a separate subject, but but he didn't exactly get to the punchline early. Let me just put it that way. The, 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 uh, yeah, but, but, but yeah, but go he ahead. Shows, but he shows his work. I mean, he that, shows his work. Yeah. And, uh, and, and but, and that, that's a good use of research. Emily Oster, whose main thing is, uh, you know, data driven parenting, which, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't go overboard on the concept, but you know she definitely looks at research and mm -hmm. is takes a very detached point of view. Again, you know Zvi Mashowitz. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, so these things are all um, you know scorable. Um, okay, another another one that's interesting I call thinking in bets. So. Uh, it, and what that does is it, 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 I think it brings about clarity. So some, you know, someone, a pundit says, you know, I think I worry that the United States is headed toward a civil war. Um, that's actually a very vague statement. And you don't, it, it's so vague that you don't know whether you really agree with that person or not, uh, if you really pressed him on it. But if the person were to say, I think there's a 20% chance in the next five years, there'll be a hundred over 100,000 Americans killed in political violence, then you know whether you agree or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the advantage of the, of the thinking in bets. 
kind categories. of test, testable it, hypotheses. Uh, or just a clear statement so that yeah. you, know, you know what they're saying. Yeah. Now, just quickly, speaking of Scott Alexander, he, he's known as a big figure in the so-called rationalist community. Right. Um, and that's been uh, kind of, well, there's been controversy over that because the New York Times wanted to do a piece on him back before he had revealed his real name when he was writing under a pseudonym uh, on a, uh, a blog. Well, that's, that was, st- that's still a pseudonym. Oh, it, oh it's still a pseudonym. Uh, oh, you're right, you're right. But but now we actually know it's it's kind of become known what the name is. Right. You're right. That's a good point. The um, But in, anyway, that was, and, and he kind of, uh, he didn't want the piece written because he didn't want his identity uh, disclosed. He has a private practice as a psychiatrist, I guess. He didn't want clients to know who he was or for whatever reason. And so uh, he kind of mobilized his followers to convince the New York Times not to do the piece. Huge controversy. Uh, one result was a not very flattering, eventually a, very, a not very flattering New York Times piece uh, about, about about him. But anyway, it, the piece was also a, a not very flattering take on this thing called the rationalist community. The, uh, uh-huh. the, these are people, including him and others, uh, who, um, and I think there's a lot of kind of libertarian people in that crowd sure. as uh, as it happens. Um, and, Although and he's has, not. He he may not be, but that has to do with its origin story. But I think that crowd maybe popularized the term steel manning, right? As being the opposite of straw manning, uh, your yeah, opponent, no, right? Yeah, no, that 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 crowd is a you know uh, you know done a been a you know an inspiration to a lot of uh, people, probably including myself on that. Although I I, I don't I'm, I was never part of the community, but um, uh, I don't know if you've familiar with Julia Galef's, uh, the yeah, I've had her, her on the show. Her, her, okay. her book is, yeah, the scout mindset. Uh, she, she is, I had her on the show to talk about the rationalist community. Yeah. Cause she's okay, a figure sure. in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she's, uh, you know, relatively accessible. Some of these people are, are sort of inaccessible. I mean, you know, someone like Elias or Yudkowsky is, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's an interesting he, case. Yeah. We had him on blogging heads in early days. Uh, uh an interesting, an interesting person. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there is this community that's kind of trying to make progress. Uh, I don't know. It seems to me, I'm not sure. It seems to me it's become, it isn't, insular isn't quite the word, but, uh, and, and I'm not saying it's their fault, whatever the word is for what I, I, the characterization, characterization I'm searching for, but it, I guess it's got a reputation as being its own little thing with its own little norms and too weird for a lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think they're, uh, first of all, calling yourself the rationalist community <laughs> is, you know, it, it, it's going to put off yeah. know, a lot of people like, like, what? So the rest of us are not. And, uh, yeah. um, and, um, and I, I think, Especially when it comes to uh, trying to come up with theories about personal relationships, about you know whether you know about what you know, you basically try to entirely use your head to deal with marriage or children or things like that. Uh, the, the stories about that make you realize mm, these these people are are, are weird, um, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, the Scout Mindset, I think, is is a brilliant book, really. And it it uh, the one 
the one thing that I would say it, it, it doesn't, it lacks, and it's, I think, what I think is kind of lacking in your work is this, the significance of the social aspect of learning. This, again, my aphorism that people uh, decide what to believe by deciding who, who to believe. So if you, if you just say, well, you know, here are a bunch of biases that you have, um, that doesn't necessarily change people if, if, they've, if they've already decided who they believe. Uh, and and right. that's, kind of, that's kind of the most powerful lever. That well, that, that's interesting. So, so it, in, in a sense, your project, in, in that view, your project uh, goes more to the heart of things because it's trying to change the behavior of the people whom the masses, so to speak, trust. Yeah, right. And so instead of saying, well, here is a person with a lot of Twitter followers or, gosh, it looks like, uh, you know, snappy put downs and personal attacks are, are, are really, you know, that, that's the way, the way to do things, draw attention to people who are doing things differently. That's interesting. Now, I, I mean, wh- you're, you're right that I have uh, the thing you were skeptical of about what I was doing was, uh, in, I guess, in a way, trying to generate change at the grassroots level. One thing I have in mind when I do that uh, is that part of the problem is the way people behave on social media. And I'm trying to encourage people uh, to I figured if you could get enough people to uh be more careful in a certain sense on social media, think twice before retweeting and things like that, um, you'd be better off. But it's true that that would take a mass-based movement. Now, things like that have been known in human history. I'm not sure True. I'm the kind of person who would be good at starting one, but that's a separate uh, question. There have been uh, grassroots movements that have succeeded. I can't think of a really close analog to this one but you take the point right it, it's yeah sure i mean you can call i mean civil rights looks like a grassroots movement uh-huh. um, you know uh, yeah uh and uh there's a sociologist i read who argues that anti-smoking was a basically a grassroots movement yes the surgeon mm-hmm. general's report makes a difference but uh, there was a grassroots movement against smoking building before that, and then it really took off uh, in some ways for reasons other than the Surgeon General's. Well, there was a second set of data about the effect uh, of it on non-smokers who were in the room, and I think yeah, that but, was that was mobilized. Well, actually, the the data on that are, are, have never been that powerful. But yeah, but that, but that, it was used, a, it, but it was put to good rhetorical use, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, the, but I mean, that's the point that the sociologists made is that you, you had this movement and, uh, and this movement, uh, you know, he would argue distorted the, mm-hmm. the, the results and sort of, you know, but it, it just became this, um, you know, it became a, a grassroots movement. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to go off on this tangent, but it's interesting some of the uses it's been put to for, I mean, for my money. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg's prohibition of smoking like in Central Park is is, among other things, a way to make keep low income people out of Central Park. But I don't want to get started there. I, 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 the uh, and you would say uh, there's certainly no good data on the outdoor exposure to to another person's <laughs> cigarette smoke that would right. that, that that should justify a policy like that. But um, uh, so. 
Yeah. Um, so you think your thing, so 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 that's an interesting way to look at this. Your your project is is kind of um targeting the elites because they are the ones who become for better or worse the sources of authority. Uh I, I would say there's a dimension of of what I would like to do that that has the same effect, which is uh, I, what I would like to do is use my newsletter to um, to to give people examples of good behavior we want to reinforce and actually encourage readers to reinforce it. Go like the tweet or go retweet it or go uh, or on the other hand, to retweet a valid criticism of, uh, you know, a particularly tribal tweet or something like that. So that is, uh, that, that would be the, the, um, the mobilization of, of grassroots energy to, to change the incentive structure of elites. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree with you that, 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 uh, you do want to change the incentive structure of these people because you know, these people presumably know better. I mean, probably Tucker Carlson knows better than to behave like Tucker Carlson. At some in some level, and if the incentives were different, yeah. uh, because he wants to, you know, be popular and be a media figure, if these incentives were different, he'd be different. If if the incentive for, for Tucker Carlson were to be like Scott Alexander, or uh, he could probably be a lot closer than than he is now. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I my view of psychology is that people are extremely good at self-deception and most people manage to convince themselves that they're being virtuous and honest. I will say Tucker Carlson would be a tough case. He, he seems like a reasonably smart guy who, who must be aware that when he's encouraging, as he did, people to, on the street, walk up and confront people who are wearing masks and have a child who's wearing a mask and accuse them on the street of child abuse, he must know, like, that's probably not a healthy thing, right? Yeah, right. I mean, even if you're right. Even if you're right, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, uh, leaving aside the factual questions, like I didn't see his documentary on January 6th, but uh, yeah. leaving that aside, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um yeah, I think under a different incentive structure, some of those people would behave differently, and some of those people, uh, you know, if, if if people were using different heuristics for evaluating who to trust, uh, that would, um, you know, different people would rise up in prominence. And, yeah, you know, that, uh, getting from here to there is, of course, quite the challenge. Yeah, let me. I, I mean, the the other. I mean, a big challenge I've become aware of is uh, one you you seem to think is in principle soluble, uh, but but it gets back to the grading question. Like when I when I ask myself, well, who would we be giving positive reinforcement to? Let, let me give you an example or two that was brought to my attention by a friend, and I of of good behavior by people, and I kind of was skeptical as to whether it was. Uh, worthy of praise one was a um it was a well one was paul krugman saying on inflation now i could be wrong about this and my thinking was well first of all uh i think he's been doing that for a while but you know he knows that the verdict is going to be rendered pretty soon in clear terms he's taking a position on uh on 
you know, he it's a testable hypothesis. He's saying, no, inflation isn't going to be this high. It's going to be this high. And you would give him credit for just being clear to begin with, I know, by your grading yeah. criteria. Uh, but when when uh, when my friend wanted me to give him credit for uh, just saying uh, I could be wrong, I thought, well, that's just self-preservation 101. He knows the verdict is coming in, uh, you know, within months. And 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 does that make sense to you? <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I think both make sense. I think I'm maybe a little more sympathetic to your friend. It, it, you know, it, if he says, you know, here, the best thing for Krugman to do would be to give an explicit caveat, like, you know, if such and such is going on, then I will turn out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. you know, sort of, yeah, that, that gets to the sort of showing your work. Um, or I would change my mind if... I mean, if you were really, you know, that would be the, the pure way to earn an open mind point would be, you know, I would change my, you know, I, I think inflation is going to be low, but I would change my mind if. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if we, and it could be something as simple, oh, if we get three months in a row of, you know, over, you know, yeah. six tenths percent per month, I'll, I'll change my mind. Um, I think that's legitimately good. I, and Krugman is an example of someone who, if there were negative points over the years, would have would have would be the all time leader um, because I would give negative points for um, straw manning, uh, personal attacks, uh, ad hominem, and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, that, I, I don't want to. Again, I, I prefer the positive reinforcement. I, I think you can do that. And I think I think this. Um, I think these categories can be explained to people who, you know, if you had people who wanted to do the grading uh, well enough that they could do it. And I think, you know, the grading doesn't have to be perfect to achieve really good results. I mean, I think the people that bubbled up uh, were pretty good. I mean, and some of them were unexpected. Like I didn't even know you were out there before somebody picked you and then I had to, to you know, review your stuff. Um, Another one that was interesting is Jonathan Turley. I mean, he's on Fox News, so I never, you know, I never watched Fox News, so I mm -hmm. wouldn't have known he existed. But boy, he is a lawyer who just lays out the best case on the other side and then goes after it. I mean, it's he does what you're supposed to do. Uh, that was a real surprise to me. Yeah, I've I've actually uh, become a little bit of a fan of a podcast by Andrew McCarthy, which is. Ironic, because back when he was, you know, he's a former prosecutor who's yeah. associated with National Review and does a, a podcast with Rich Lowry. Back in in uh, when he was more associated with war on terrorism stuff, I just thought he was. The blob, part of the blob? Or? No, it, it was specifically Islamophobia. It was specifically kind of what's struck me as, as semi-crazy stuff. Maybe I should go back and review it and I change my mind. And anyway, when you take him in any event, when you take him out of that context, uh, I find he does a pretty good job of sizing up the arguments on, you know, he covers Supreme Court cases, uh, the January 6th investigations and stuff. And I think he's uh, he's pretty good. I mean, I, I like to try to stay tuned into alternative media ecosystems generally. It's I just think it's healthy. And it's more interesting. I mean, you get surprised more often. Well, nowadays, like, I think Substack is just, you know, there's, there's more interesting stuff on Substack now than I have time to even read. And, and, and high quality stuff. It's a, yeah, well, there's a lot of so, so, so you, you know, you talk about, I mean, I think trying to 
reform or save Twitter, I think is kind of a hopeless case. But, yeah, but it's I, still it, influential. I mean, that's a trouble. Uh, if, if we could get, if we could get yeah. people, if we could get the, uh, yeah, no, I mean, there, there, you know, there's this, fr- there's this phrase, academic Twitter, and I think, oh, you know, <laughs> why, why <laughs> well, you know, can't we get, you know, if if we could get the uh, get all those people to just, you know, write this, you know, put your content on a Substack and uh, just get them off of. Yeah, but Twitter. I think Twitter is performing a function that is is just going to be performed by something. I mean, because technology has made it possible, and it's it's a different function from Substack. It's a way to uh, become uh, aware, an efficient way to become aware of what different people are saying. Now, I think Twitter's so algorithm. A question: So, how do you use that? Because I actually do not. I mean, well, my, I, I actually do not get onto Twitter at all to try to find out anything. Physically, how do you do that? Well, first of all, I think Twitter has made it harder. Uh, When Twitter first started, there, in effect, was no algorithm except for the straightforward one that if you follow someone, every tweet they do will show up in your feed. And, uh, And if they retweet something, that will show up in your feed. If they just like something, or I think it was called favorite back then, that won't show up in your feed. So mm-hmm. uh, if you don't follow somebody, you don't have to see their stuff. If you do follow them, you will. And, and that was a, uh, and when you throw in one other function, the so-called mute function, which is a way of uh, somebody you're following choosing not to see their stuff, that's actually valuable because sometimes you're following somebody and you don't want to offend them by unfollowing them because they can find out about that. So that, that was also valuable. But anyway, at that point, you had a very, you controlled the algorithm. And, and you can see how that would be useful. I want to see what Paul Krugman says. I want to see what David Brooks says. I want to see what Arnold Kling says. And, and in addition, you can create sub lists. Like I have a blob list, okay? Like Michael yeah. McFall, all the, all the people yeah. that I think are ruining the world. And, uh, and, um, and that's still... That is still kind of valuable as a way to keep track. But I think one thing people don't realize about Twitter is you don't have to tweet. You can use it in a completely passive mode to just keep up with stuff. But, you know, it's actually integral to the Substack phenomenon because what Substack is, is a way to allow people to monetize their Twitter feeds. If you look at the people Substack goes after, it's mainly people, in other words, they pay them these big advances like Matt Iglesias. These are people with huge Twitter feeds. And they're like going, Matt, do you understand? You have a lot of power. You're not making, you have a lot of influence, a lot of followers. You're not making any money off of it. And this is Twitter's failing. I, I wrote a piece years ago about how, how uh, Twitter should make it easier for, for tweeters to steer people toward longer pieces of, uh, it's a long story. Well, well, for Twitter to become the space where the longer pieces of writing are. In other words, for Twitter to become Substack. But they didn't. Yeah. Substack figured it out that we can, you know, you've got you've got a, a, a an a, an ass an unrealized asset in effect if you have a lot of Twitter followers. But the people at Substack would be the last people who wanted to get rid of Twitter because it, it, it is it is one of the primary drivers of traffic to Substack. It's an integral part uh, of the model. But I I agree with you that Twitter has a lot of unfortunate properties but it can it can i would encourage you to 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 fool around the 
the algorithm has made it harder. Suppose it's unclear to me whether there is a way how close you can get to the good old days where you totally controlled um, your feed. So, I mean, people tell me, you know, use TweetDeck. I, I mean, and somehow TweetDeck is integrated. TweetDeck into may it. get around that. I mean, you know, one thing I'd like to see is I'd, li- I, I'd like to hear what you, with your free market orientation, think of this. But it, it would involve a kind of regulation, but it wouldn't be that intrusive. It would say to Facebook and uh, Twitter, um, you have to make your algorithms uh, public and you have to. You have to do whatever you'd have to do technically to make it possible for third-party software providers uh, to offer the follow to offer the service of creating their own interface, right? Like, so they could. I, I would buy a Twitter interface from a third party, and 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 it would have knobs like, uh, do you want to see less? Uh, I don't know. They they would invent the knobs: less yeah. anger, less right-wing people, less. You know, they would create dimensions. They would fit. They, they would. Who knows what the interface would wind up looking like? But you would at least give people a choice of algorithms. In effect, yeah. I, I mean, as something you would want, I'd say yes. I mean, I actually have stopped looking at Facebook. I mean, months ago, and it wasn't like I was mad at Facebook or anything. It's just it's a bad use of my time. Yeah. Uh, so that says there's some kind of market opportunity for somebody to put, you know, to make the algorithm more useful to me. Uh, I, I'm willing to wait for the market to, to figure it out. Either Facebook says, okay, we're, we shouldn't have one algorithm because we, we, we lost Arnold Kling uh, with our algorithm. We should open it up to other people or we should, you know, hire people to develop alternative algorithms or something. But I, well, Facebook um, does have two choices at the top. And one is latest top tweets, latest tweets, something. I, I, it's not clear to me that either of them is the thing I want, which is the good old days. But uh, um, in any event, the, 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 well, my idea, the market could only sort it out uh, along the lines I'm saying if the government mandated a certain kind of transparency from the social media companies about what their algorithms are and, and allow people to develop uh, so-called um, APIs, the uh, whatever that stands for, yeah. uh, so, so that make it easy to, to you know, anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah, we only have a slight, you know, <laughs> a slight disagreement that I, I think, you know, I mean, I once wrote an essay, you know, build a better Facebook because everybody, you know, has these, you know, Facebook should do this, Facebook doesn't do that, we got to make Facebook do that. Yeah, build a better one. Uh, you know, yeah, but the uh, right, but the positive. Right that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I mean. Understand that there's you know there's a lot of lock in there. That, right, that, a lot. Know, they, they, they've already you know they, they've built up this uh, you know this set of you know set of customers. They've become like the, the new phone book. You know you can't you can't look up somebody in the phone book anymore, but you can look them up on Facebook. Uh, LinkedIn has the same you know the same thing going for it. But LinkedIn hasn't turned yeah. it into some e- evil thing the way. Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Well, the, the the social media networks, the positive network externalities are so strong that you wind up with a kind of a market dominance that can be hard to shake without doing anything shady. It's not like you have to connive. You know, it, it's just like it, it happens very naturally that if you get beyond a certain critical mass, you achieve market dominance. 
it's not completely impenetrable because generationally, like Facebook's not cool among young people. But what Facebook has done is they keep buying the competitors. They bought Instagram. They bought WhatsApp. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, we're we're kind of far afield. The, the uh, um, I don't I don't know. So you think you're you don't think you, the challenges are insurmountable? Because wh- when I imagine, like, if you got the funding. Uh, I mean, first of all, as a practical matter, it would probably come from somebody who had an ideological slant. If it came from the Ford Foundation, the referees would be left of center, you know? And and uh, so there's that. And, and I guess one question is, you know, I think we both know people who we think would be good referees. There are There are people who are just kind of naturally detached, but it's not a trivially easy challenge um to come up with good referees right yeah i wouldn't call them referees so much as i call them you know, official scorers analogous to the official scorer in baseball who says this was an error or this was a hit right um and um yeah i mean it would be a skill set i think i think it uh it might be trainable i ideally uh you could eventually get it to uh you know, be solved by uh, uh, you know, computer learning. But uh, I think people's instinct is that the machine learning would take uh, a huge a huge number of cases before you could do that. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, it'd be a long time. Uh, I think it's very much worth thinking about how to uh, how to do get the grading be done at relatively low cost how, how you know to get the scoring done at low cost uh, that would be worth thinking about before you sort of plunged ahead and said all right you know take you know 20 million dollars and you know hire this many people and go through this kind of training procedure i think uh you know i think it, it, but this way if 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 someone were to start this as as a business or as a nonprofit. Uh, I would, I would first like go through a lot of experiments slash brainstorming to try to try to bring the cost down to something reasonable. Now you did. I, did you do two iterations of this? Yeah, the first one was kind of stupid because uh, I, I had three categories and just threw it out there and way too and, and I allowed the the owners to pick way too many people on their teams. Mm-hmm. The second iteration was was more sensible, but. Uh, the level of work required was uh, you know, was really high, and and I'll be honest, I'm not the uh, I'm I'm not the most uh, persistent person with any of my ideas. I mean, I'll throw out random ideas here, random ideas here. Somebody comes to me, and I react to their ideas. Uh, I don't sort. You know, I don't get this monomaniacal focus on an idea yeah. that you would really need to get something like get, to get this particular thing going. I right. Just, uh, I, 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 I'm, at this point, I'm not. I'm not the. I'm not a good entrepreneur. You're not going to be the the sense. Steve Jobs of fantasy intellectual teams. Right. I just yeah. I'm just not going to. Okay. This is this is going to be a, my obsession. This is what I'm going to leave behind to the world. I just don't have that that uh, that much inner drive. Or maybe you can be the Steve Wozniak. Maybe you just need Steve Jobs to show up, take your idea, and uh, 
and market yeah, the well, hell that, out of it. That that probably, I mean, the, the one time I did have a business was back in the '90s. Uh, um, I had a partner who was way more of a salesman than I was, and, was, and way more driven than I was. Mm-hmm. That, that worked. We all need a partner like that. <laughs> yeah. Some of us do. Um, yeah. Okay, let me see if there's other things I. Uh, so, do, I mean, in principle, you think there's. This has helped me clarify the difference between our approaches. I'm trying to mobilize. Uh, I mean, I want to encourage better citizenship on the part of everyone, including at the grassroots level. But I also would like to uh, mobilize people at the grassroots level to change the incentive structure of elites. You have a different approach to changing the incentive structure of 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 elite. I mean, th- there are similarities. I mean, you're 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 mobilizing other people uh, to 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 highlight those incentives and 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 hand out kind of carrots. But uh, is that? Yeah, and but and I'm really starting from the view that uh, you know behavior is social, and uh, uh, that you know. What I and this may be a mixed mischaracterization, but what I think of you is saying, well, if I could just change everybody one by one and make them more rational, that would make the world more rational. And I'm th- I'm thinking you, it's a uh, you have to leap to a different social equilibrium somehow, uh, where the the dominant heuristic isn't does the person say something that sounds good to me uh, because of my identity and tribalism. Mm-hmm. But the dominant heuristic is, oh, this guy scored really high uh, in uh, in fantasy intellectual teams, so I should trust them. So, yeah. so we get a heuristic where people, instead of trying to pick between Joe Rogan and Anthony Fauci based on their loyalty, they they say, oh, Emily Oster and Zvi Mashowitz are the high scorers, so let's let's pay attention to them. Yeah. Uh- that makes sense. I, I mean, I think, yeah, one mind at a time, like going door to door is not the best way to start a movement when you put it that yeah. way. But 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 there are ways of uh, of starting them. There 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 are uh, people who do that. I think I, I, I think you would have to get people to consider themselves part of a movement and take pride in that and yeah. get the kind of gratification out of it that you get out of. Uh, belonging to, I don't know, a, a spiritual movement or a political movement or something. Uh, and, and I think, uh, there, you know, a, a lot of pieces would have to fit together. Uh, you, you, you'd probably need several kinds of expertise, salesmanship being one of them and not the only one. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I, let me just, as we wrap this up, h- how pessimistic are you in the absence of some kind of improvement of uh, discourse and some kind of dampening of, you know, the polarizing or tribalizing tendencies, which I consider problematic, not just domestically, but on the international stage. In, in the absence of something like what we'd both like to see, how pessimistic are you about the world? Um, I, I should probably be, uh, force myself to think in bets to give my answer. Um, um, So, okay, so I think, you know, the worst outcome to me would be a 
Um, Let me, let me come back a little bit. I, one of the the end of the keep... world is what I consider the worst outcome, by the way, the apocalypse. Yeah, uh, apocalypse right. okay, aversion project is a phrase right. I fooled around with in my, in my newsletter. But uh, yeah, I would consider that, that okay. the extinction of all life all uh, on this planet, <laughs> that would be one bad outcome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, won't, you won't be around to collect on the bet, but. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, you can't hedge against that one. Um, no. The. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's certainly something to worry about. Um, <laughs> but uh, let me, uh, uh, I, I, I think a dystopian scenario, there's this phrase that uh, Peter Turchin, the quantitative historian, has mm-hmm. of elite overproduction, where basically you get a bunch of people who uh, grow up thinking because of who their parents were or where they went to college or whatever, that they belong in positions of power. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of more of them than there really are positions of power. And, uh, and, they, and you get this, and they just sort of nip at each other's heels. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think it gets to civil war. I, w- I, would, I would be betting against uh, lots of casualties from people fighting. But I think a... Uh, a less and less effective, uh, less and less effective institutions, from corporations to government and so on. And um, mm. and, and I guess what I look at with my, with most concern, it's kind of a leading indicator with that is sort of higher education. Uh, it just looks to I'm one of those people who look you know looks to that from the out, outside. It looks like it's falling apart. Uh, it's lo- you know just losing its sense of purpose and finding you know truth and developing ideas i mean when if you're going to have innovation you have to almost by definition allow people who are to be nonconformists you know conformity and innovation are i think they're just they conflict too much and uh, we're getting so much conformity pressure it seems to me again i'm from the outside in higher education that that's got to be damaging. So I guess that's, so my big worry is that we, uh, we get a lot of conformity and therefore lose our ability to innovate and solve problems. Uh, now to define that, uh, I guess I would say we, you know, I, I think we did a, uh, a, a definitely a suboptimal job in reacting to the pandemic. And I guess we, we would see more and more suboptimal uh, responses to things that come up uh, if we don't do something to improve the climate for uh, intellectual development and public discourse. Yeah. So okay. have, a, have a nice day way to end the uh, program. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I can go on all day about what I think the problems are. I mean, I think the very, structure of american democracy was uh designed for a different technological era you know just down to things like uh two-year terms for representatives and and so on i i i i'm pessimistic partly for those yeah well, I, i've i've yeah. thought about that and of course you know I, I wrote an essay that you probably haven't seen in national affairs on how to design the a better administrative state and that uh, that one will get people to tear up my libertarian union card. Uh, oh, good. 
but uh, is yeah, that what is the title of the if they want to Google it? What is the oh, just let's see if I well, if, if they I Google can, your name in national affairs and administrative state, they'll probably get it right. You probably get pretty close, yeah. Or how to design it's either regulatory state or administrative state. I forget okay. which one I tell you. I probably called it regulatory state, yeah. How to design a better regulatory state, okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Arnold. So again, your newsletter is called In My Tribe. It's free. Uh, there is a paid version that I, I think entitles people to see some videos or something. Is that still the deal? Or, 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 or just very uh, various live events. So okay. uh, uh, like if I, uh, a lot of my idea for all these live events is to take some people who I think are, are interesting intellectually, you know, the be good people and just say, well, how do you get, how do you source your information? You know, where, mm -hmm. How do you decide who to trust? And, you know, how do you use Twitter? Because I can't figure out how to use it. Maybe one, somebody who on there will be able to do that. Anyway, the, I also have a pending live seminar on, you know, financial institutions and what a, you know, just because there's so much interest in crypto and crypto regulation, which I don't necessarily understand, but I do understand the history of financial institutions, and it might be sort of relevant to to question of how to regulate crypto. Okay, yeah, and your Random newsletter comes stuff. out it comes out very often. It well, has, daily, it's replaced my blog. Yeah, and and it and it has you know short summaries of things you find interesting that people have said. I think a lot of these people uh, were on a fantasy intellectual team. I was happy exactly. to see uh, so one of my own things referenced in your in your newsletter recently. Um, so I encourage people uh, in my tribe. And now we know uh, now we know the origin story for the phrase. And I guess I will now go listen to the music of what is it? 10,000 Maniac? What is, what is? Yeah. yeah. In my tribe's their best album. Yeah. I miss I miss that group pretty much entirely I, for some reason, uh, but um, but I will check it out. So thanks, Arnold. Okay. Keep it up. Okay. Well, thank you. All, All right. right. Bye bye. Great to talk to you.